With these things in mind, let's examine those 10 questions that McLaren thinks that we as Christians should be asking ourselves. McLaren states that he is proposing these 10 questions in order to foster debate, in order to bring us to a new state. Hmm, sounds like new age language to me. Also, before our review of these critical 10 questions, I would like to remind you that Brian McLaren openly admits to not having any formal theological training or instruction. Not that it matters much, really. I bring it up only to demonstrate that his view of the Bible and Christianity does not originate from a Christian perspective, but a purely secular one, as his formal training is in the discipline of literature. This explains his tendency to allegorize the Bible instead of interpreting its contents literally as a book of divine inspiration and full of historical as well as scientific fact. Question number one. What is the overarching storyline of the Bible? Here, McLaren states that many people, he means fundamentalists, read the Bible as a series of disconnected quotes and uh, episodes yielding maxims, rules, formulas, anecdotes, propositions, and wise sayings. They have little or no sense of the larger story into which the statements fit and in which their meaning took shape. He also indicates that, quote, many of us, referring to New Agers, believe it is too small, narrow, and flat to do justice to the richness of the text, unquote. Response number one to question number one. First of all, it sounds to me like uh, McLaren feels that he is superior in intelligence to many people by saying that they have, quote, little or no sense, unquote, of the Bible's larger story. That sounds as if he is saying that we need his superior abilities of discernment in order to understand the Bible. Pretty arrogant and offensive, if you ask me. Now, I don't have a formal background in literature, but I don't believe that I need one in order to grasp what the Bible says. As I stated before, it is really very simple. Secondly, he calls it too small, narrow, and flat, quote-unquote. I would like to remind Brian that the Bible states in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, quote, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Unquote. Jesus himself is plainly stating here that the Bible's narrative is designed to be narrow and plainly understood because salvation is so important for everyone to understand. God is not the author of confusion. God knew that men would begin to drift away from him if they had the room to do so on a broad path that would ultimately lead to their destruction. God keeps it narrow and plain for a reason, folks. God loves you and does not want you to stray from him. And one more thing for the record, Brian. 
The overarching storyline of the Bible is about God's grace to man. You know, since you were wondering. Question number two. How should the Bible be understood? <laughs> McLaren starts this line of questioning by making the statement, quote, in a time when religious extremists constantly use their sacred texts to justify violence, many of us feel a moral obligation to question the ways the Bible has been used in the past to defend the indefensible and promote the unacceptable. If we continue to use the Bible as we did in the past, we render ourselves likely to repeat past atrocities, unquote. Then he says, quote, so we ask, what is the Bible, and what is it for? If the Bible is God's revelation, why can't Christians finally agree on what it says? Why does it seem to be in conflict with science so often? And why has it been so easy for so many people to use the Bible to justify such terrible atrocities? Unquote. Response number two to question number two. Well, I will attempt to keep this as brief as possible, although this matter really cannot be completely addressed with a response of any kind of brevity. Mr. McLaren begins this question with the same old argument that atheists have used to buttress their positions against God and against Christianity. That is, that Christians of the past have employed the Bible as a tool to promote violence. I am certain that some of his examples would be the Crusades and the Inquisition, among others. I will, be, I will begin my response by saying that I can agree with him that religious extremists have used the Bible incorrectly, with the caveat that there is a profound difference between extremists and fundamentalists. I will argue that you can be a fundamentalist Christian without being violent or espousing or participating in violence of any kind. Extremism is present in all of the major religions of the world, and I will suggest to you that extremists in any major religion will use their sacred texts to promote hatred or violence, but not due to their religious fervor. They merely employ them hypocritically as a means of justification for their own avarice. Let's face it, any real student of religious history will be able to do the research and see why the Inquisition took place. The Inquisition was not an attempt to win souls to Christ, but was an outright attempt by the Catholic Church to gain political power, economic wealth, and total control of the population. Plainly put, the Inquisition was an overt attempt by the Catholic Church to rule the world with an iron fist. That, folks, is extremism at its worst. And it's absolutely wrong to use the Bible for extremist purposes, especially when genocide, mass accrual of wealth, or lust for control are the primary goals or focus of the intent. Has it been done in the past? Certainly. Was it morally wrong? Certainly. Will, as McLaren has asked, these atrocities of the past be repeated? Sadly, it is certain that they will. 
but they will not be repeated because of religion. They will be repeated because of man's sinful lusts for wealth and control. With that being said, I would like to address the sub-questions contained in this main question. McLaren asked the question, quote, what is the Bible and what is it for, unquote? Well, the answer is simple. The Bible is an integrated message system from God to us. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is a divinely inspired message from God imparting his love for us and to us. It is a message of grace designed to show us that we are created by God, created for God, and that we are nothing without God. It is not just a collection of stories and poems and fables, as McLaren intimates throughout his books. It is indeed a constitution that Christians are commanded by God to live by. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, quote, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast fully known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, unquote. The Apostle Paul appears to be telling Timothy quite clearly that the Bible is to be used as a constitution, a guide, if you will, to be used in every in living every facet of the Christian life. I'm sure that Mr. McLaren has read that passage of Scripture many times before, but if he is still asking, what's the Bible for? I guess he just doesn't take this passage seriously, or he chooses to ignore it as if it isn't there. But this doesn't surprise me, coming from someone who is espousing the discarding of what he deems irrelevant to Christianity. This very passage of Scripture states emphatically that all Scripture is to be taken seriously, not just parts of it. The final sub-question that needs to be addressed is, quote, why does it, the Bible, seem to be in conflict with science so often, unquote? Oh, boy. You had to ask that question, huh, Brian? Well, all right. If you really need to ask, here goes. This question, posed in the way that it has been my, by McLaren, clearly places science ahead of the Bible as authority. This, too, is not a surprise, coming from a man who clearly places intellectualism ahead of theological Christian doctrine. It had to be said. On that note, I have a question of my own. Since when did science take the place of the Bible as the source of authority for mankind? The fact of the matter is that science will never replace the Bible as the source of authority. Science will always be the source of authority for those who wish to remove God from their thinking. A reminder is in order, I think, for those who place science above the creator of all things, God. The Bible says, quote, uh, excuse me, in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, quote, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not." Unquote. This Bible verse states that in the beginning, that means in the beginning, before there was anything, including science, there was God. Since God existed before science, then science cannot replace God in the order of anything. Science will never replace God as a source of authority, but that will not stop sinful men from trying to do so. Men down through the ages have been trying to replace God's authority. Examples? How about one of the most blatant and obvious attempts to literally dismiss God from the mind of man? The theory of evolution. Charles Darwin was an admittedly devout atheist and formulated this theory in an attempt to explain the origin of creation. Let, remind, let me remind you that this theory, even though taught as scientific fact, is still a theory. Science has produced no credible evidence that this theory can be transitioned into scientific fact. Yet, this theory of evolution has been taught to our children in public schools for decades, and it has been taught as if it is fact. Why? Well, the Bible has the answer in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, quote, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Unquote. This verse makes it evident that sinful man does not like to retain God in or as part of his or her knowledge. This is why man seeks to replace God as authority with, with science. Man places more value on his own intellect than the creator of his intellect. That is also why these emergent and new age thinkers are so preoccupied with intellectual philosophies of thought. They think that they can explain God away, and they want you to believe that you can too. Sounds satanically familiar to the garden again, eh? In summation, McLaren truly attempts to marginalize the content and the inspiration of the Bible and seeks to use this marginalization tactic to replace the Bible's authority with the not-so-authoritative secular science. Sadly, many will fall prey to this deviant heretical deception. I pray that you will not be one of them. Question number three posed by McLaren. Quote, is God violent? Unquote. McLaren begins this question with a statement. Quote, nearly all religions, and certainly all monotheistic religions, seems at times hell-bent on inspiring people to kill one another, making atheism sometimes seem a more ethical alternative to conventional violence-prone belief. Unquote. He then asks, quote, Why does God seem so violent and genocidal in many Bible passages? Does God play favorites? 
Does God choose some and reject others? Does God sanction elitism, prejudice, violence, or even genocide? Is God incurably violent? And is faith capable of becoming a stronger force for peace and reconciliation than it has been for violence in the past? Unquote. Response number three to question number three. I must begin my response by saying this. When I first read this question posed by McLaren, my my first thought was, is he kidding? Is he really questioning the character of God? I actually had to reread the entire question two or three times to make sure of the intent of his question. And yes, the intent and purpose of the question is quite clear. McLaren now wants us to question God's character. He wants you to begin to question the the divine nature of God. He wants you to question God's omniscience and his omnipotence. He wants you, as a Christian, to question God's moral authority and his motives for doing what he does. This is, to put it in the clearest of terms, the height of impudence the very pinnacle of satanic incorrigibility to question the very character and motives of the all-powerful and almighty God. I shudder to think of the ramifications of such heresy and apostasy. To even begin to ask, quote, is God incurably violent, unquote, connotes that God, in the mind of some deviant thinkers, is an entity that is psychologically troubled and needs to be corrected. This is a damnable heresy, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. There is absolutely no virtue in this question, and it literally reeks of satanic influence. I feel the need at this point to remind Christians who are tempted to give these heretical philosophies of thought any audience what the Scripture says about the men and women who are teaching them. Hear what the Bible says about them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Quote, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. The Bible, uh, unquote. The Bible clearly states in this passage that there are those that are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, meaning God, which is what McLaren is doing when he questions if God is incurably violent. But read on and listen uh, listen to how utterly sinful and depraved it is to question God's character. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, quote, Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not any railing accusation against them before the Lord. Unquote. The Bible states emphatically here that even angels, whom God created with more power and might than man, dare not bring railing accusations or dare to question God's authority, motives, or character. Yet, these impudent men choose to do so. But wait, there's more. 
In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, it says, and I quote, But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceiving while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the ways of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet, unquote. Well, the Bible is extremely clear concerning these false teachers, isn't it? These passages are truly not complimentary, are they? They are called spots and blemishes. In other words, they and their teachings are being called filth by God's holy word. And make no mistake, Christian brother and sister, what they are teaching is nothing but unholy filth, totally contradictory to the Bible. But hold on. The Bible tells us what's in store for them after some quite explicit further description of them and their practices. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, it says, quote, These are wells without water, clouds, that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage, unquote. Wow. Peter is reminding Christians here as to what these false teachers, these apostates and heretics, will look and sound like, and he does it in a splendidly simple yet very articulate manner, leaving no doubt as to how to identify them. Do they sound familiar to you? Let, let me remind you of what McLaren promises if you will just question God. He promises you, quote, liberty, freedom from under the dome, unquote. Flee from these teachers and their false teachings, dear Christian, for if you let them deceive you, you will be included in the punishment that awaits them. What is that punishment? Glad you asked. Here it is. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Quote, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse than them, with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, 
The dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Unquote. Peter states without ambiguity here that once someone who professes to be a Christian and has the knowledge of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone and turns away from this knowledge and preaches another gospel contradictory to God's holy word, that their end will be far worse than their beginning. I am tempted to pity these false teachers, but then I read what Peter said in the Bible, and I don't see, hear, or feel any pity in that entire chapter. So I won't pity them, but I will express my fear for them and what will be their end, according to the Bible in the book of 2 Peter. Sadly, I doubt that these false teachers have the capability to return to the way that is right. Sadly, I think that the Bible's warnings to them will go unheeded, but they have been warned indeed. Dear Christian, Please do not be seduced by these false doctrines that question the authority and character of God. For if you do, you open yourself to facing the same damnation that awaits them. Wrapping up this response to McLaren's wildly irresponsible, supremely impudent questioning of God's character cannot be done completely in one chapter of a book, and I will not attempt to do that in this book. I will promise you, however, that this particular subject will be addressed many times in this book and expounded upon as McLaren's central theme is to question everything about God. And this theme is resplendently rife throughout his written works. With that said, let's move on to another heretical question posed by McLaren. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a short break. And when we return for the next half hour, we will continue with question four from Brian McLaren's A New Kind of Christianity. Stay tuned. <laughs> 